Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. The dietary supplement industry has come a long way. A significant number of new dietary supplement products have appeared in the marketplace since Congress passed the Dietary Supplement and Health Education Act of 1994. At that time, there was an estimated 600 U.S. dietary supplement manufacturers out there marketing about 4,000 products. Today, as many as 100,000 different products are available to consumers. On today's episode, we'll take a look at how research and product validation has changed over the past 25 years, its impact on all these supplements, and we'll also explore the science-to-sales connection. Joining me now is Dr. Susan Hewlings, VP of Research Affairs at Radical Science, and Dr. Doug Kilman, adjunct professor at Nova Southeastern. Together, they are the co-founders of Substantiation Sciences, LLC, where they provide dietary supplement consulting, substantiation expertise, and science writing. Hello to you both, and welcome to the NutriCast. Hi, Danielle, and thanks for having us. Hello, Danielle. Thank you again for having us on. Yes. Thanks for joining me today. So, Doc, let's start with you. How has research and dietary supplement product validation changed over the past 25 years or so? Well, that's a great question. And if you are old enough to remember what dietary supplements were like in the late 1980s and the early 1990s and the advent of the Dietary Supplement Health Education Act of 1994, the organization of the industry has changed. And then with that, because regulations were put in place in a specific manner, combined with growing consumer interest, popular interest, and academic interest into the roles of nutrients in the human body and the roles that other food stuffs or food ingredients can impart on the body, there's been an explosion of studies, explosion of interest in understanding human health better through nutrition. And this has included the advent of more studies being done for dietary supplement validation, for dietary supplement ideation. We think that this product does this. Let's do some preclinical work and learn what it actually does. So I would say that the industry has matured in a great way to comparatively to where it was before Deshaies. And within that, I would like to point out one of the easy ways that you could tell that there is an interest in something is not by the amount of Amazon sales. That's one metric. But from an academic research and product development standpoint, you can go into PubMed.gov and you could put in the search term dietary supplements and you could look actually by years. So you could look at how many supplement studies were done prior to 1994 when Deshaies became enacted and how many were done after. So the couple of hundred thousand studies that have been done after 94 have dwarfed the tens or a couple of hundreds of studies that were documented before 94. So uh, the advancement again has been interest the ability of science and the interest of consumers to learn more about what promotes good quality of life and longevity. I'd like to add to that, Danielle. I think that one thing Doug just finished with is an important thing to point out, and that is communication. So one of the big things that's changed, especially recently, is the availability to communicate the science via 
the internet, social media, and the growth that that has undergone. And so what's related to that then that we can underestimate is the consumer. Is the consumer interest in dietary supplements? The consumer demand for research for those supplements to back up what they're saying? And then the consumer communication of the research once it's done, open access journals, peer-reviewed journals that consumers can get right on Google Scholar or PubMed, and they don't have to have like a university. You know, it used to be that research was most available to academics, but now that's wide open. And I think that's driven a lot of what we're seeing, and I think it's an important thing to mention. I would like to add, and, and thank you, Sue, for playing this volley game. Um, I, I would like to add that prior to 90, 1994, there weren't many companies that were actually interested in having their product tested at a university or a hospital or a private contract research organization to learn what it does or to quote unquote prove what it does. And the growth for product validation was spurred on by many things and not just congressional activity in the early 1990s. Doing clinical research also became a part of marketing to part of the supplement industry because it became a point of differentiation. The companies were then able to say, our product has been university tested. And that became a moniker that now bleeds over to marketing and other terms that are used. But the validation uh, through using studies versus anecdotes really grew much more in the late 90s as compared to the early 90s. So many great points there. And then one other thing to mention, I mean, there's been so many technological advancements. How have those impacted validation? I think in several ways, first of all, but I think one of the biggest ways is that we are able to study the effect of supplements um, from an efficacy and safety perspective on the general population. We can reach people like we never could before through social media, through recruitment. At Radical Science, we are able to do decentralized trials, and we're able to look at the data we collect from those trials across all our studies because of AI. So it's several things. It's the availability to reach a diverse population. So we talk a lot about diversity in research, including women and diverse populations. We can do that now like we never could before. It used to be that people we were studying had to have access to a CRO or a university. You had to be able to go into the facility, the lab, what have you. Um, or uh, people were reached only via telephone. Now we can reach people in their homes and we can find out in a real world setting how a supplement is affecting that person within their everyday life. So a sleep study is a perfect example. A person can sleep in their own bed, in their own life, in their own home and report how they're feeling and does the supplement make them feel better. And in addition, a big part of that is home testing and home kits and the availability for participants to test biomarkers in their home. I think um, COVID really pushed that forward more than anything, right? Everybody got really comfortable mm -hmm. with that with all the COVID tests. And then we could sort of take the same sort of idea forward and we can use uh, saliva, we can use blood finger pricks or you know other ways that people are comfortable testing. And we can really see not only are people feeling better, but are they also moving certain biomarkers? 
And then the other side of that is we can also look at do people need to take a certain supplement? So we can test vitamin D levels and see where they are. And then, then we can personalize supplementation for that. And that's also connected to validation. So there's multiple ways, I think, that we've been able to reach people and also utilize AI to gather huge, large data sets so we can really see what's going on in a diverse population. If I can add, one of the things that I think has changed with technology has made it where, from a research perspective, the decentralization, like Sue talked about how radical science is one that does that. But also, I'm thinking back also to the days in the early 2000s and even late 1990s, early 2000s, when I was working in pharmaceutical research, where some of the technology that we would was uh, developed at the time would be used for those studies. So an example would be if we were doing a study on a potential sleep medicine or something, let's say, for hot flashes for a woman going through menopause, they had digital diaries that they were able to use at home to log certain things. But even back then, that would sync with the cloud or through a plugin would then send the data to the researcher. So you were able to, to collect some at-home information that normally you wouldn't in real world time. Now, technology has advanced much greater than that. But when we think about how technologies help with validation, whether you mentioned wearables that monitor blood glucose, if you're a type 2 diabetic or a non-diabetic and it's using glucose sensing or something else, I think allows us to get much closer to the truth for the population versus those people that just raise their hand to participate in a study because you could make it available to a wider group of people through technology. And get the data faster too. You, you hit on anything like, OK, so some of the things were there before, like you mentioned, you could upload. But now we can actually have that data in real time. We can literally watch a subject. You know, if, if the idea is that we're looking at steps or exercise or something, we can watch it real time. And then once we get a large amount of data, we can analyze it quickly. So I think speed should not be overlooked in the advanced benefits of the advancement. Yeah, definitely. I love that you brought up so many different things, something as simple as just having a phone or the internet down to more technical advancements like AI. What about the roles that non-academic and academics have had in perhaps silently shaping the industry? You know, one of the things that crosses my mind when we say non-academic is are people in professions such as legislators, lawyers, groups that do lobbying or representation groups of certain segments of the population. So I think that there is silently shaping the industry through legislation. They're silently shaping the industry even through litigation. And you could say, or we can argue, how is that silent when it's in the public domain? And I'm gonna use the definition of silent here is when the industry turns a deaf ear to what's going on, then it's silent to them because they're not paying attention or not aware. And I will say like here, there's something going on right now across this country that is shaping the industry that seems to get a collective yawn from some of the industry. And the, the example I'll bring up is that there are a handful of states that have put laws or, put, or potential bills to become laws on their books for uh, restricting the access to dietary supplements for people that are 18 and younger in two different classes of products. 
weight management, whatever that might be, and muscle building, whatever that might be. And so here you have, for example, this is a law now in the state of New York. And why the industry didn't go bat crazy over it is beyond me. But nonetheless, so not only are supplement companies what they are allowed to retail in that state affected, but their marketing is affected. And now anybody that carries their products, whether it's a brick and mortar store or an internet retailer, also has to follow those laws. So if you're a brick and mortar retailer, you literally have to physically pay money and restructure your store so products that anybody could get that are now being restricted to 18 year olds and below, they're not able to easily get, meaning behind lock and key and you need a manager or somebody of some uh, level to be able to unlock it and hand it to a person if they're allowed to buy that product. So that is also impacting a cost on the industry. The, and I say silent because the industry stayed silent on things like this. And unfortunately, it's born, these efforts by legislators on this issue is born out of misinformation surrounding the topic of eating disorders. So the proclamation is that if you restrict access to dietary supplements, teenagers won't develop eating disorders. And while there's no evidence to show that teenagers develop eating disorders by taking a Flintstone vitamin anyway, uh, using that just for an example and hopefully a laugh, but nonetheless, there's no evidence. And even Dr. Susan Eulings published a, a landmark paper uh, last year covering what is the state of science with the relationship of dietary supplement use and eating disorders. Dietary supplements are actually used in the treatment of eating disorders, and they're part of the an algorithm of what we're taught as registered dietitians that are used, whether it's a protein supplement, a multivitamin, vitamin C, and a few other things. So I, I think that non-academics and academics both shape the industry silently and unsilently, and some of it for good and some of it for bad. So one example of an academic that's not silent and everybody in industry knows about them is a Dr. Peter Cohen out of Harvard. Uh, he is a, a person that is very concerned regarding adulterated ingredients, misbranded products, and things regarding human health and safety that we understand. His research is dedicated to showing, uh, uh, it would seem at times, that supplements are a very underregulated category, which we all know is true. There's regulations on the books, but whether FDA enforces them is different. So going back to this question of what are the roles that non-academic and academics had in silently shaping the industry is very profound roles and impactful ones that many people that are in the industry don't appreciate or don't even see is going on for whatever their reasons might be. I hope that gives you some sort of an answer. I think one of the, the ways that might be somewhat silent is that there is much and it, it kind of connects what we were talking about before about technology in the industry and, and its impact on industry is that there's not as clear of a line anymore between academics and non-academics. And so that has good things and bad things associated with it, just like anything else, right? Because it, it, it allows other people to have impact and to play a clear role in the industry, in the development, R&D, and, you know, science, you don't have to be an academic to speak about science. But then the flip side of it is, is because of all this access to information in, in on the internet and elsewhere, everybody thinks they're an expert. <laughs> and so it leads to issues like what Doug is speaking about surrounding this legislation, whereby 
you know, yes, academics like myself have spoken out unsilently, like, hey, this is based on false information. There's no connection here. You, you know, you're misinformed. And we have stood before different state legislators and spoken about this. This is not correct. You know, I've gone and spoken on behalf of CRN and other trade groups, et cetera. But again, these other people think, no, they know better. So there's good and bad when those lines aren't clearly defined. And it's it's had some interesting impact both silently un- and unsilently. So it's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and thank you for bringing all that up. Since we're talking about it, what did you find in your paper, Sue? Well, you know, when I got my PhD, I did my dissertation on eating disorder prevention. So it's something I have been studying and reading about for a very long time. I also, as an RD, had a, a private practice for nine years, and, and I specialized in working with people with eating disorders. And so I tried to take all of that knowledge, experience, et cetera, research that I've known for many, many years and try to put it into a very short paper as best I could. And it's just the, the, the idea that there is no one cause to an eating disorder. It's very complex and multidimensional. As a result of focusing on this and studying it and working in it, I had to take classes in many different multiple disciplines to try to understand that. And I had to work with multiple discipline, uh, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, you know, medical personnel, et cetera. So it's multidimensional and complex. And to say it boils down to any one issue is remiss. And it does a disservice to the many people that suffer and suffer in different ways from eating disorders. So it's disheartening to me when a group that uses Harvard's name and says that they do eating disorder prevention and that's their focus, it's very disheartening to me. They're doing the people they say they're helping a disservice. To say that eating disorders are caused by any one thing, let alone a thing that hasn't been identified to be associated with it. So I take it personally and very upsetting. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that paper. I'll have to link it in the text on our website, NutriIngredientsUSA.com. And I'm glad you mentioned these states that continue to try to restrict supplements. You mentioned New York. There's California, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Maryland, perhaps a few more, making moves to restrict access to certain products. Many of these states, you know, they're the most important states for dietary supplement sales. It's disheartening, too. When I sat in and spoke to the Massachusetts state legislator, the chairperson for the committee that was evaluating the bill discredited those of us who spoke, not just myself, but those of us from industry who spoke, muted us and then discredited us and said that we were there because we made money in the industry and, and that that's why we were there speaking and that that discredited our statements that we were making. So yeah, it's, wow. Needed money. I mean, I, what are we around a $60 billion industry I read recently? Something like that? Yeah, something yeah. like that. Uh- but, you know, it's kind of funny when people talk about the dietary supplement industry as being a big industry because it's 50 to 60 billion dollars that it generates per year. Yes, that's a lot of money. And it's more most definitely than I have sitting in my couch or in the bank. But <laughs> um, relatively speaking, not too long ago, like as an example, Pfizer purchased a pharmaceutical company for a price greater than what our whole industry generates. So, you know, if you purchase somebody for, for example, when Pfizer purchased Wyeth, I think it was for like something like 35 or $40 billion at the time. And at the time that was bigger than the whole supplement industry. So 
how big is the supplement industry if it's still less than revenues of one pharmaceutical company? You know, how, um, uh, or what they can purchase rather. So um, how big is it really? And yes, anybody, it seems that has teeth and chews and swallows has an opinion about nutrition, but nutrition is a science and dietary supplements are a science as well. And understanding what vitamins, minerals, botanicals, and other ingredients can do and do do in the body is not only a science, but it's an art. And communicating what the findings are of science and the utility to public health and, and to promoting health and longevity is also an art. And there are a great many people that do this in articles and educational materials and more. So um, I, I just think that we or the industry needs to also always consider educating not only the consumers who might like, you know, who you're trying to target for your market to buy products, but also legislators and also people around that are influential about affecting commerce. Yeah. And speaking of legislation, the Shea, it turns 30 this year. How has it withstood the test of 30 years of rapid scientific and technological advances? Uh, briefly, I would say, I think the Shea has withstood the growth that has occurred in the industry pretty well and the growth that has occurred with technology pretty well. The framework of the Shea holds tried and true, have good manufacturing practices, have good standards of identity, strength, purity, and composition, follow the generally regarded as safe or NDI pathways. I think all of that holds true, but I do think there needs to be a modernization of Deshaies to deal with a slew of things that weren't thought about prior to 94. And one of the examples that we have now that um, is, is ongoing is something like NMN, what about dietary ingredients or potential dietary ingredients that are also being looked at by some companies for development as a drug? How does that impact development or use in, in as a supplement? And these are things that Deshaies did not fully comprehend and contemplate, but now it looks like this next version of the update, whenever it does happen, will. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point because I don't think anybody could have predicted also the scientific advancement and how we were going to be able to isolate compounds out of botanicals and extracts, et cetera, whereby there are some things in different concentrations and different, different amounts that the line between dietary supplements and drugs might not be as clearly defined. And I think that's kind of one of the things we're starting to see. And where do, you know, where do we draw the line where something from the same plant, let's say, could be a, a drug or a supplement. So that's an interesting thing. I think the other thing that's interesting in advancements over the years has been how we could potentially enforce things like the FTC guidance, FDA, et cetera, and the idea of how the internet plays a role in that. It makes it easier, right? You need less people and less resources. And I think we saw that a lot with COVID and how it was easier I don't want to say easy, but easier to find companies that were making disease claims about COVID because you can use search engines, right? You can use AI to find those. And so I think those are some of the ways, whether it's helped, you know, how it stood the test of time against Deshaies, maybe not as clear of an answer, but it's one of the things to consider enforcement and how technology has changed enforcement. And it, it's, it's created some interesting questions in our industry. In mm -hmm. a good way and in a bad way. But. 
Yeah, the internet has been a blessing and a curse of sorts as well because it does help with enforcement and tracking down some some of those more sketchy supplement companies out there. But also we've seen the proliferation of so many sketchy companies out there with some of these adulterated products we're seeing on Amazon and other websites. I would actually argue that the amount of products that we see that are problematic You know, those that uh, are tested by third party or other companies and tested not to be what's on the label and have uh, uh, questionable ingredients, that part of the the growth of technology has actually spurred the negative innovation of companies like this. And so let me just put it this way. It used to be, you know, companies would have a store or they would sell through a GNC or a vitamin shop or their own web store. And then 30 years ago, along came Amazon um, using the big dog in the room. And Amazon basically became a flea market where you could sell anything and everything in a semi-organized fashion, which also then made it much more democratic initially, where anybody could put a product up for sale and it wasn't necessarily vetted. And so there became a lot of Me Too companies, knockoff companies, sort of like what people used to uh, talk about when there would be like the fake Rolexes sold in Chinatown in New York or along the streets, you know, do, do we do anything about it? Does it cause a problem? But they would propagate and they would, you know, cause problems. Same thing happens when you have big retailers or e-tailers that don't necessarily have really good vetting programs for determining what they will allow other people to sell on their platform. And currently, actually, Amazon is having some FDA and other related issues due to that, because while they have their own rules and regulations, it still is where, for example, I'm actually looking at a Schedule 3 anabolic steroid that I could buy on Amazon right now, and (laughs) and, uh, literally. And the FDA turned down this new dietary ingredient notification for this ingredient in 2009. So it's not like it's just, I mean, it's been 14 years that this product Uh, has been known that it's not good, but Amazon is still allowing a major company to sell it. We have to question not only uh, the the people that vet the ingredients that go on their platform, but how much do companies care about what the FDA says is legal and illegal if they never get anything more than a warning letter. So there's a lot of, you know, I don't know, technology has spurred good things in innovation. And also, of course, there's always going to be a negative underbelly that occurs too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so hopefully consumers are doing their research and perhaps that's where marketing comes in. Uh, Can you break down the connection of science to sales with respect to dietary supplements? I'll speak on that, Danielle. It's kind of my job (laughs) at Radical Science. I serve as sort of the scientific liaison, if you will, and connecting science and research to sales and marketing. And I think there's a lot of people in our industry that do that, that don't even know they're doing it a lot of times. And it's it's sort of walking the delicate line, right? Because like we mentioned academics and in like academic science, there's very sort of black and white rules like of things you say and how you communicate science. And we want to stay true to that and to the integrity of that. But at the same time, in, in industry, you have to create sales because you got to make money. It's for a profit. And so the idea is to try to maintain that integrity, the scientific integrity, but also to understand what sales and marketing have to achieve and to help give them the tools to do that in language that's understandable to non-academics and to the general public. And so it's an art form. And I think, you know, years ago, Doug had said to me, he's like, you know, 
this is what we do. <laughs> this is what, you know, I mean, not like tooting our own horn kind of thing, but this is what we're good at. We're good at communicating scientific terms in translating it into other understandable languages. And there's not a lot of people who can do that. And I think that comes from years of, you know, I spent uh, 23 years as a full-time professor and educating people of all different levels of learning in that has helped me do that. So I think that's an important part of our industry. And one of the examples of how we do that, right, comes down to substantiation. And making sure that marketing claims, which are typically you want them to be in very clear and understandable consumer language, but you want to make sure they have scientific backing behind them. And then you want to be creative with them, but make sure that the science backs them up. So that's one way. And I think then the other way is being clear with sales about what they can and cannot say about what can be done in studies, um, making sure they understand, you know, what is a crossover study. What is a parallel study? If you're doing this type of study, you do it for this long, et cetera. And I think then the other way are in conversations like this, right? Where we're talking about science and how it's utilized in the industry for communications, in podcasts, in social media, TikTok, that sort of thing, as well as still on websites and blogs and, and that stuff. So making science understandable without letting go of the integrity of it is important, and it's a skill. Early on in my career, one of my first dietary supplement-related studies was a study that I worked on when I worked at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And this was a study where we were looking at can whey protein have any impact on the immune system of people with HIV? And it was a very interesting study to me. One, because the hospital allowed us to supplement and, and use whey protein. Uh, at that time, it was made by a company called Unipro. I don't think they exist anymore. I know they don't exist. They were a different division of uh, Metagenics, actually. But nonetheless, this became interesting. And it started, to me, to open up the door to, well, if, if there are findings, how do we translate these findings to people that can benefit from it? And if you read between the lines, it's how do you translate findings from a study to consumers? And those consumers become then interested or appropriate for them to seek and use such a product. And that is really just translating science. What did you learn? What did you find? What is useful to humanity? To sales, to the consumer that may benefit from said product. And honestly, the same thing actually happens in pharma, in the pharmaceutical world, right? Now it's much more overt. There's direct-to-consumer advertising and there's other things. But to me, translating science into sales is really just about translating the information that is found in research to usable tidbits for improving or potentially improving quality of life, appearance, performance, energy, so forth, and consumers that are interested in it. And I think that what's known as SciComs and MedComs are all with that same common goal. And I think that the nutrition supplement industry is growing in part because it's becoming better at communicating its utility to more and more people without trying to oversell itself. So a great example, I think that industry can connect science to sales is through education. It doesn't have to be overt sales, right? It's just educating the consumer about the importance of certain vitamins, minerals, and nutritional products 
And I think there's a lot of examples of that. You know, we have certainly done a lot about omega threes in, in communicating that to the general consumer and the vitamin D and me project that CRM put forth. And there are a lot of other examples and it doesn't have to be directly connected to sales for it to actually encourage sales of supplements. It doesn't have to be specific to any brand or any company. It benefits industry, it benefits consumers. So I think education is always a a great way to Mm -hmm. connect the the science. Mm -hmm. Today, we've talked a lot about how far we've come and some of the technological advances we've seen. And I'm just wondering what most excites you about what's ahead and do you have any concerns? I think what really excites me is the the idea of the utilization of like personalized supplementation, which coincides with like personalized medicine. But it's the idea that people will be able to know what they need with very easy tests. And we're almost there as it is, like where you can look and see, you know, you can measure your vitamin D and say, hey, do I need a vitamin D supplement or a magnesium supplement? And then it's the idea that, you know, we're getting further and further along, even with genetic needs for certain supplements as well as we are with medicines. So I think that that excites me, but there could also be some downsides associated with that too, because sometimes that, and I think it's already happening, that idea or that concept almost gets ahead of the science and that can have a downside too, because then people people don't really know how to use it. So there there's an excitement and there's a, oh boy, I hope it doesn't get ahead of itself too far, but I really like that. And I like the idea too, that it seems that we're seeing brands and ingredients and R&D that is recognizing like the whole body connection. So for example, the gut brain access. Doug and I have been working on some, some, some products and some brands that are creating multi-ingredient products, like not just for gut health. So they're saying, okay, in the past, it would be like, what category is your supplement in? It's in gut health. Well, Yeah, but now we're finding through the bi-directional gut-brain access, we are finding that multiple symptoms, multiple feelings are connected with that. So there's not really just one category. So we're seeing some that are affecting the gut, but also have ingredients in the same product. They're affecting the mind, clarity, cognitive function, and other aspects that are connected to gut health. So I like that. I like the idea of the recognition of the connection and that issues don't happen in a silo. Yeah, I was just writing the other day. We we post something every month called the launch pad. And one thing that I'm noticing is more and more brands are putting out products that target multiple benefits. So like you mentioned, it's not just gut health. It's, you know, maybe it's a probiotic, but it's for your skin health or it's a probiotic, it's it's for your cognitive function. So it is interesting seeing so many more products that target multiple conditions. You know, Sue mentioned the gut-brain access as being something that's novel, unique, and technology is helping us to advance. And, you know, also you're asking what does the future hold in terms of using artificial intelligence and other technological advancements? I think that we sometimes need to temper the excitement. For example, everybody's excited about artificial intelligence, but yet we still don't really know what it can do. So we have to be tempered. We always think things beyond. And here's where I I have a, a thought to share with the dietary supplement world. When artificial intelligence is used for screening out or learning which molecules or bioactives in a variety of foods, plants, botanicals may have human utility, 
that just because the the AI determines such does not preclude the need for actually still determining it in humans. And we have a variety of companies that have put together products that are based upon AI spectering and yet still need the human validation. So we have to still remember that while AI can give us a ton of information, we still need to double check it. So don't let AI do your homework report for you before you double check that it wasn't plagiarized. I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. It's, it's the same thing, same analogy for the supplement world. Just because company X says they have all of this elaborate and Silicon Valley has put millions of dollars into it, still doesn't mean it's actually going to do a damn thing in a person. So I um, have to address that by reminding everybody, if you're going to market it and sell it for human consumption, you're still best off when and where possible of having a, a finished product validation trial that validates, of course, the safety and of the product along with the utility. It's good for sound mind and practice and other intellectual property reasons, but also again, because the more that the industry does it, the greater that the confidence that consumers have, which is already high in the industry. And when we build consumer confidence, we can also help dissuade some of the negative talk that occurs from groups like American Medical Association and others that still poo-poo the need or the, the utility of dietary supplements as a part of human health. And I'm sorry to babble, but for all of the groups that negatively talk about the utility of dietary supplements, food fortification and food enrichment is supplementation. So every time they're getting their bread or every time they're eating their total cereal, as an example, total doesn't naturally occur with 100% of 12 vitamins and minerals for recommended daily intake. That's what? Enriched and fortified. And so they are taking supplements. When you drink your orange juice, as long as you're not the one squeezing it out of an orange, that actually has extra vitamin C that's put into it, allowable by law to make the vitamin C claim by the best buy date. So more and more people take supplements and don't even realize. So now we need to explain to them again through many different ways. And this excites me that because of today's way of communicating fast video, this and this, it will allow different ways for valid information to get out to consumers. Such as the NutriCast. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and before I let you both go, what's next? Uh, you kind of hinted at maybe some new products or brands and, and what else is going on with you guys? Yes, we have a consulting company, uh, Substantiation Sciences, that helps companies on ideation and intellectual property, along with a slew of other things. So we like the forward thinking that we're starting to see from the private equity world, the investment world, along with some academic spin-outs that have technologies that will allow or potentially allow for cleaner product production, faster product production, greater efficacy of ingredients through delivery technologies. And we see a lot of exciting things, you know, and naming one of them, for example, is, and this is known in the literature, I'm not spilling beans, but having, let's say for an example, an ingredient that you could take in that and it enables your body to make more of something else. So there are probiotics that are being developed that have GABA activity. So you're taking a probiotic, you're getting the benefit of the probiotic, but it's also from that probiotic, gamma aminobutyric acid is made, or other neurotransmitters are made, and other things in the body. So the utility of marrying that kind of science 
and maybe Sue can explain it better than what I'm trying to, but I think the innovation of science is still exciting and, and happening at a greater pace than we even anticipate. Yeah, no, I agree with that. There's some exciting stuff. And I also think like, it's also fun to go back to the tried and true and the basics. You know, I mentioned vitamin D. I think, you know, we have a lot of innovation and a lot of cool R&D and, you know, a lot of uh, cool things like that. But then I also, Doug mentioned fortification and enrichment. Like, we don't want to forget our basic stuff like vitamin D, vitamin E, and, you know, revisiting some of those things and the importance that they play. I'm real excited right now about phytosterols. I just did a huge review on phytosterols, and I'm like, wow talk about a lot of research and behind them. Like, why aren't we talking about these more? So I kind of like that too, like not forgetting the old stuff. I think another thing that's next is I'm excited to see where we go with decentralization from decentralized trials to also using it for R&D. What do consumers want? What are they doing? What works for them? And being able to reach not just like the savvy consumers that are you know, in urban areas or on internet or whatever, but just everybody everywhere, rural areas, every age group, what are they doing? What are they buying? What works for them? And we can do that now like we never could before. So that's really cool too. So I'm excited to be part of that, even if it's a small part. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing some of that research that you were talking about. Dr. Susan Hewlings and Dr. Doug Hellman, thank you both so much for your scientific contributions to the industry and for joining me here on the NutriCast. Our pleasure. Thanks, Danielle. If you like what you just heard, you can subscribe to the NutriCast wherever you get your podcast. You can also head to NutriIngredients-USA.com for even more Nutri-related content. Thank you for listening. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutriCast next week. <laughs>